Good morning, folks. Pastor Paul, lead pastor here at Forks Kalarna. I invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. If you think for just a minute about famous addresses, speeches, quotes from speeches, things that sort of resonate far beyond the time that they were first delivered, um, things that set a course from that point going forward. There's a few famous ones that, that come to mind for me. The first is by FDR. He said, yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy, the United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the empire of Japan. And we know with that speech, the United States was thrust fully in to World War II, fighting a, a world war on two fronts, and the course of history we know was forever changed. And people would look back on that speech and say, that was what catapulted us into that. Another one by JFK, this nation should commit itself to achieving the goal before the decade is out of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to the earth. And of course, which happened the year that I was born, 1969. And if you watch any of these NASA space movies, any of the Apollo history movies, you know that everybody was galvanized around that goal. They went back to that speech and said, we have to get a man on the moon by that date, and of course, it happened. And then one of my favorites, this is of course by Ronald Reagan, Mr. Gorbachev opened this gate, Mr. Gorbachev tear down this wall. And at the Reformation uh, trip this past summer in Germany, we stood on that spot and, and, and celebrated, remembered when all that happened. And again, it was a catapulting moment, a catalyst for the fall of communism and the, when the wall of Berlin came tumbling down. And again, it was something that people looked to to say, this speech, this vision, this course of action delivered in this way set a trajectory from that point forward. In a lot of ways, that's exactly what we have in the Sermon on the Mount. Because it is here, remember, that Jesus has been doing the works of the kingdom. Remember that he's come proclaiming that the kingdom of God is at hand. He's healing. He's making the, the, the blind see, the lame walk, um, the, the, the reign of God, the blessing of God has come, has come in. And all of these people, throngs, thousands have assembled around him to hear him teach. They see, they acknowledge he is the king. What is he going to say to us? And as we've seen in our study on the sermon thus far, he begins with this set of beatitudes. It's an invitation to the blessed life, the flourishing life. He says, if you really want to ha have a happy life, then align your life with these values, the values that God prioritizes, that I prioritize. He talks about them being salt and life. And then Jesus gets down to business and he delivers his first teaching. It's not just the first teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. It's the first teaching really in the Gospel of Matthew in the New Testament. And it is a doozy. And Jesus says this, and this verse, this line is going to forever change the course of religious history. It was at the center of all the controversy between Jew and Gentile. It's what got Jesus killed it's what continues to perplex many. And here was his statement in Matthew 5.20. Jesus says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, 
you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And as Jesus delivers this line, you can almost visualize the breath being sucked out of the crowd. Everybody being caught up short. There being the sense of like, oh my gosh, what has Jesus just said? This is like the shot of all spiritual shots across the bow because after all, the Pharisees were the holy men. They were the holy guys. The, the Pharisees have a bad reputation now, but not so much then. The Pharisees were the good guys. They were the one holding up the torch of Torah in the Old Testament. They were the examples. They were the leaders. They were the guides. They had been given this great stewardship to shepherd the spiritual life of Israel. And for them to hear Jesus say, unless your righteousness exceeds theirs, you're not getting into the kingdom. Be kind of like you parents with a high school graduate, graduation's coming up soon. It's like telling your, your high school senior, unless your SAT score exceeds that of all incoming freshmen in every Ivy League school, plus Vanderbilt and Stanford, just for good measure, you're not going to college anywhere, right? They would just say, well, thank goodness, because I didn't want to go to college anyway, right? No, they, they, it, it would lead to a point of like despair, like, well, then who gets to go? If they don't get to go, then, then I don't get to go. And it's with this shot across the spiritual bow that Jesus sort of throws down the gauntlet. And it's not just a gauntlet to the religious leaders. It's not just a gauntlet of the people. It's, it's one to us as well. How are we the people of God, saved by grace, how are we to engage the word of God in our lives? What does it mean to be obedient? What does it mean to pursue a life of holiness? What does it mean to be compelled by the very transforming grace of life into a life that honors and worships God? That, that's really the issue, and as, and as you're going to see, this provides a template all the way through the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to see this question in the background of every interaction, every conversation, every teaching. Who is eligible to enter the kingdom of God? How does that happen? Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will not enter and we need to wrestle with this this morning. This is going to be sort of the, the introduction to the main teaching portions of the Sermon on the Mount. And we need to get this right because it's going to be a template that we lay over all of our future sermons as we walk through this gospel. So we're going to be today just five short verses, Matthew 5, 17 through 20, and I'm going to invite you to stand as we read this together. Jesus is speaking, Matthew 5, 17, and he says this. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. 
Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Lord, let's pray. Father, we, you tell us in your word that your law is perfect. It revives the spirit. It's, it's the delight of our souls. And so, Father, we pray that as your people, acknowledging your kingship over us, that we would have a heartfelt desire to walk out in holiness and obedience, a life glorifying to you. Not because we think that earns us righteousness, but instead, Lord, as a reflection of the transforming grace and righteousness that you have given to us. And so, Lord, we, we pray for your help. It's a really hard passage, and we ask that you would guide us now in your name that we pray. Amen. So when a pastor says this is a really hard passage, you can be seated, sorry. That's just code for, if you don't like this sermon, just, it's okay. Um, no, it just means like there is some really deep, complex issues here that we're going to try to distill. Now, Scott, I didn't hear your announcement in this service. Did you make fun of my alliteration this service? You didn't. I said, the first service, okay, let me tell you this, okay. We're doing this men's breakfast, okay. And, um, and, the, and the title of that, of that message is, is the mission of a man. And the man, we'll talk about the man's marriage, his mentors, and his... Uh, his, his ministry. But anyway, um, Scott mocked my alliteration abilities. And so I'm very gun shy this second service, Scott, because this is a beautifully alliterated sermon. So anyway, here we go. Just going to go with it. So we're going to talk about the law this morning. First, Jesus is going to talk to us about our posture towards the law. Secondly, our problem with the law and then last, our practice of the law, okay? So our, our posture, our problem, and our practice. So let's, let's start first with our posture and look at verse 17. Jesus says something astounding. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them. Now, I read this opening line, and I hear this in Jack Nicholson's voice and a few good men. And if you can hear anything in Jack Nicholson's voice, it's always better, right? When he rhetorically asked Lieutenant Caffey, played by Tom Cruise, of course, are we clear, right? And what does Tom Cruise say? Crystal, yeah, crystal. So one good snarky question deserves another good snarky response, right? And that's what Jesus is doing right here at the top. He is making it crystal clear to all who are hearing that he has not come to do away with the law. He has not come to abolish God's word, God's law. That word abolish, it means to dismantle or tear down or destroy. Jesus says, I have not come to obliterate the law and the prophets. And by law and prophets, he certainly means, that that's kind of an inclusive term of all of the Old Testament. But it also is a, is, a, is a more general reference to the whole economy of redemption and the covenant that God has initiated with Israel. God's dealings with his people 
up to that point. And Jesus says, I want to make it crystal clear, I'm not here to tear that down. I'm not here to abolish it. I'm not here to do away with the law. In fact, I've actually come to fulfill it. Now, before we dig into to that part, what we mean by fulfill, we have to ask, why in the world would Jesus need to make such a strong disclaimer? Why would he need to come out of the gate and make it clear to everyone that he was not there abolishing the law? Well, if you read Matthew or any of the other Gospels, you know that's precisely what the religious leaders were accusing Jesus of. Jesus, they believed, was a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus flaunted the law. Jesus disobeyed the law. Jesus ignored the law. Sometimes he even just seemed to provoke the Pharisees by doing something they said was not the law, right? Um, they thought he was an antinomian, that he was there to disrupt the whole religious order and that he in fact was tearing down Torah and it was their job as the shepherds of Israel to guard the people against this. You could make the case again, this was at the very heart of why, on a human level, why Jesus was killed. But what we need to understand, whatever else Jesus is going to say about the law and how we interpret the law and how we apply the law, that's what the whole Sermon on the Mount is about. Whatever else Jesus is going to say, make no mistake, Jesus is pro-law. He is pro-obedience. He is pro-holiness. He is not there to tamper with the law. He is there to fulfill it. And kind of like a poker player, when they get a good hand and they, 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 when you sort of go all in and push all of your chips to the middle of the table, this is what Jesus does. In verse 18 is he kind of doubles down on what he just said. As if, as if it wasn't clear enough, he issues this, this verse. For truly, verse 18, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. That, those Greek words, iota and dot, they, they're Greek for uh, different forms of punctuation in the Hebrew. The yod, which was the smallest of all of the letters, a, a punctuation mark. Um, it, it's a way of saying not one, as the King James Version would say, jot or tittle will pass away. I, I've come to fulfill all of it. All of it is good. Even, even the strange stuff in there, it's, it's fundamentally about me. It'd be like JFK again saying, not one dotted eye of my charge that we are going to the moon. Not one will be fulfilled, will, not, will, will fall away until we have done what we said we are going to do. What, 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 again, what is Jesus saying here? All of the Old Testament, all of it. Every single bit of it. Even the hard parts. Even the weird stuff. And let's be honest, if you're reading through your Old Testament right now as part of your Bible reading plan, there's some strange stuff in there, right? There's like swords getting stuck into the middle of, of obese men. There's unclean discharges. There's all kinds of crazy things, right? And we just kind of like, whoo, boy, well, as soon as I can get 
pass that into Corinthians or something like that. Things are going to be great. But Jesus is saying, right, all of it, every last jot and tittle. Like, like the Apostle Paul, when he looked at the Old Testament, what did he say? All Scripture is God-breathed, useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting in righteousness. And Jesus says, in the law is in full effect until the new heavens and the new earth are here, until the old heavens and the old earth are passed away. In other words, until we no longer need the law, because what? The law will be written on our hearts. And so Jesus, again, all this to say, I'm here for it. This is good. It is righteous. It is a reflection of the character of God. And as we're going to see, I've come to... to to realize and perfect and fulfill the law in a way that you guys, the Pharisees, can only imagine. But before that, he gets, he issues a warning. Look at verse 19. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. I want to say something generally about our posture to this, to, to the Bible, because I think that's what Jesus is getting at here. He doesn't mean that one day in the kingdom of heaven, those who aren't serious about righteousness, we're going to get, he's going to give them the job of cleaning the toilets, right? That's not what that means. Although, is there toilets in heaven? Probably. Anyway, you can, we're not going down that path. But least in the kingdom of heaven is, 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 a, is just, a, it's, a, it's another, it's a phrase that means not in the kingdom of heaven, right? That, that's what he means. Well, let me talk about our posture a minute to the word of God. Because we live in an amazing age. And, and, and we take for granted the amount, the sheer amount of biblical resources that we have at our disposal. Right now, in your pockets, in your, um, in your, in your purses, probably, um, hopefully, um, put on silence and vibrate only, right? Um, you have access to literally millions of sermons, millions of biblical resources, podcasts, commentaries. When I'm working on a message for the upcoming week, I can find out what anybody in church history since the time of Christ, if their sermon was recorded, what they had to say about this passage, right? And then why my message is going to be better than theirs. No, 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 not at all. It's, it's, it's a weighty thing. We stand on the shoulders of the spiritual giants that have gone before us. And there is incredible blessing in that. But it's also can be our great bane. And here's what I mean. Now, for the first time in human history, anyone at any time, anywhere can say anything they want about the Bible. Anyone can pontificate, anyone can theologize, anyone can have a new vision for why everybody else that came before them was wrong and why they're right. And oftentimes this happens with catastrophic results because it is easier than ever to play fast and loose with the Word of God. So I'm on Twitter, and, I, and I'm on there to lurk, okay, to, I just to observe what's happening. 
And so um, I'm observing you and you don't even know it. No, I'm actually not, I'm not on Facebook. I'm on Twitter only and I just, I, I, I look at two, two kinds of feeds. One is the sports feed just because that's my own idol and I'm always repenting of that. But I love sports, it's a hobby. But I'm also following other thought leaders, other theologians, other, other folks, just to see what the theological temperature is out there. I particularly follow a group of progressive liberal theologians, just to sort of, what's the landscape? And one of the things that I'm increasingly amazed at is just the rapidity of how quickly doctrines, truth, the, the faith once for all delivered to the saints, how quickly and almost casually, haughtily tossed to the side Christian doctrine that's been accepted for 2,000 years, watered down, questioned, mocked. We like this, we don't like that. That's offensive, strike that. The culture affirms this, let's make sure to celebrate this. Anything that, in other words, that would deviate from me creating a life, a path of comfort and affluence for myself has to be done away with. And guys, this has happened with catastrophic results. And let me tell you who it particularly impacts, it impacts kids. And because and they're often the most impressionable. We see this particularly in the areas of transgenderism and same-sex marriage and homosexuality. And Jesus had real severe warnings for those people who would tamper with the word of God. He says, you know, things that cause people to sin are bound to come. I don't have this passage up there, but it's Luke 17. He said, things that cause people to sin are bound to come. But he says, woe. Woe to them by whom they come. It would be better for a millstone to be tied around their neck and cast into the ocean, and here's what he says, than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. This is serious business. This, when Jesus says this in verse 19 about relaxing the standards of God's word, this is serious business. Jesus says, least in the kingdom. Now, what does this have to do with us? Let me just say, it's very easy to cast stones at this group, that Twitter feed, that cultural moment, that theological group that we think has gone astray. But Jesus has something much more personal for us to consider here, Four Oaks. What is your posture to the word of God. Easy to criticize the progressives, yet at a deeply personal level, what sort of posture do you have and do I have when we come to the word of God? Are we eager? Are we leaning forward, positioned, just like Samuel, I'm listening, Lord, your servant is here, speak. Or Isaiah, here I am, Lord, send me. Just, just tell me what to do. God, I know I don't get it right. I know I miss the mark. I know I fail in many ways, but my heart of hearts is to honor and glorify you by doing what your word says. Just tell me what it is 
Give me wisdom into it. I don't want to go to the right or to the left. Christian, can you say, can I say, that's our posture? Are we malleable, open, teachable? Because as we're going to see in a moment, that was not the posture of the religious leaders. And as a result, they had led a whole people astray. Before we leave this point, let me just say this. Um, my wife Susan and I had an opportunity to, co- to kind of co-teach the women's Bible study this past week on Tuesday mornings and uh, Tuesday nights, Wednesday mornings. And the women of the church are going through uh, the book of Ephesians. And of course, we were anointed to teach Ephesians 5, right? Every women's Bible study's favorite passage and submission and headship. And, and so we, we walked in there and let me just say this. I had to really, I just had, I commended those women because there was such an eagerness. There was such an openness. There was such a posture to say, Pastor Paul, we just want to know what this means and we want to do it. And Four Oaks, let me just say, I, I believe if Jesus was writing a letter to Four Oaks Church, here's our strengths, here's our weaknesses, I, I believe he would commend you. He would commend you. I believe we have a heart as a church that is set on wanting to know, obey, and run hard after the word of God. And I would just want to simply encourage us to continue to do that all and more. All the more. And and I think this is what Jesus is putting his finger on under this first point. I have not come to abolish the law. The law is good. The word is good. Regardless of the other things he's going to say about how we interpret it and apply it and what's been fulfilled, is this our posture? Okay. Second point, we got to get moving. Jesus and our problem with the law. Now look at verse 17. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Obviously, when Jesus is, when we're talking about the problem of the law, we're not saying that there is a problem with the law. Okay, look at Psalm 19. The law of the Lord is what? Perfect. Reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. He's talking about the Old Testament. There's, there's, there's nothing wrong with the law. There's nothing wrong with the Old Testament. Obviously, what's wrong is with us. We couldn't obey it. We struggle even now when we come to a, a, a portion of God's word that we know we're falling ashore. We'll oftentimes do anything other than to reorganize our life and repent around it. Instead of humbly confessing, submitting, repenting, we rationalize it, discard it, try to find ways to go around it. And Jesus says, I know this about you. I, I, know, I know you are sinful. I know that you are wrestling through these things. And he says, this is why I have come to, what does he say, fulfill the law. Now, what does that word fulfill mean? Now, sometimes it, it can have a narrow sense when we say that there are certain prophecies in Scripture, certain passages in the Old Testament that are fulfilled in the New Testament or that are fulfilled through the person and work of Jesus. And that is certainly true. But Jesus means much more than this. What Jesus means is that 
I am here to consummate the law. I am here to bring to fruition and rightful conclusion everything that has happened up to this point in redemptive history. In other words, everything about the Old Testament, everything in it was pointing to me. It was predicting me. It was preparing the way for me. It was pointing to me. And until you see me sort of laid over the, the context of the whole Old Testament, the Old Testament won't make sense. But once you see that Jesus is at the center of all of it, that he is the fulfillment of every promise, that he is, he is, he is a sign, everything that was done in the Old Testament was preparation for him. This is what R.T. France says as if Jesus was speaking. He says, far from wanting to set aside the law and the prophets, it is my role to bring into being that to which they have pointed forward to carry them into a new era of fulfillment. Guys, the Old Testament is not just a set of rules and regulations. The Old Testament, in fact, is preparing the way for the Lord. Just as an example, if you were an Old Testament Jew and you were reading through the book of Leviticus and were having to comport yourself in obedience to all the commands in Leviticus, um, let me just say a couple of things. One, you would be very tired. <laughs> you would be very burdened. You would offer, go through all the rituals of offering something for a sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins, and then you would turn right around the next week or the next month or the next festival and have to do it all over again. And you would begin to think thoughts like this, man, this is a lot of work. <laughs> this is a huge burden. Why do I have to keep offering sacrifices over and over again? And the answer is simple, because I keep sinning. When can I stop offering sacrifices? When I stop sinning? When am I going to stop sinning? Never. You see how this goes. But when you begin to ask, wow, you know, it would be great if there was a once-for-all sacrifice. Wouldn't that be so freeing? Wouldn't that be so redemptive? Wouldn't that be so purifying? Wouldn't that, wouldn't that just set our conscience free? So when Jesus comes and the writer of Hebrews says, the blood of bulls and sins cannot take away sin. Only the one-time sacrifice for sin, that is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's what Jesus means when he says, I have come to fulfill the law. I came to do what you could not do. I came to, to carry the full weight, not just of the, of the requirements of the law, but I am everything that the law is pointing to. And if you're having a hard time right now in the middle of those Old Testament readings, and everything seems just a little blurry or hazy. And let's be honest, there's lots there, again, that don't make sense. Let, let me just 
Let me explain what this interpretive grid does for you. So those of you who know me, you've been around a long time, know that without my corrective lenses, I am generally blind as a bat, okay? Um, and if, if the perfect vision is 2020, my vision without corrective lenses is 1500 over 20. I was a kid in third grade with the Coke bottle glasses that were, you know, this thick. I was that guy. And still, when I go into the eye doctor and they make me take my glasses off my contacts out and they shine the light on the big eye chart across the room and they, they'll say, what's the smallest row that you can read? Now, everyone knows the top row, right? It's always what? E, always, you know this. I can't even see E. I'm not joking. I can't even see the chart. I don't even know what office building I'm in, okay, sometimes. But it's amazing. They get that little machine, they put it right up, and they start dialing it in. And all of a sudden, it's like, shazam. I can, that, that's, that's my vision. Because when you come to understand what Jesus says in Luke 24, that all the law and the prophets were preparing the way for me. When you start thinking about that and put that grid over all of your Bible readings, it will completely transform your reading. It will completely transform your perspective. You will begin to see Jesus all over the place. You will see Jesus in the places you least expected him. You will see everything happening in the Old Testament is pointing to him, preparing your heart, preparing people's heart toward him. This is why Jesus says, I'm not setting aside the Old Testament. The law is perfect. Nothing wrong with the law. I had to fulfill it. I had to complete it. I had to carry it forward. I am King Jesus. Think about this. I wrote the law. This is going to be very important as we're walking through the Sermon on the Mount because we're going to hear Jesus say at different points, you have heard that it was said, but I say this. This is because Jesus is the new king. He is the new interpreter. He is the authority. And the question for us as we turn to this last point, is he the king of your heart? The law is perfect, but is the king who wrote the law, is that your heart's desire? What is your posture? This brings us to our last point. Jesus and our practice of the law. And this can only be an introductory to really this whole next section on the sermon. But let's, let's get into that last verse that we talked about. Verse 20, that's so controversial. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. There are few verses in the Bible that have caused as much consternation as that one. And you should see what commentators do to this. Oh, that's just hyperbole. Oh, that's just to send the people running and fearful in all directions. Or oh, no, no, that, that, that's just the vision for an eschatological kingdom. I mean, that's ridiculous. No, one, no one's righteousness can see, exceed that of the, of the scribes and Pharisees. Make no mistake, it would have absolutely shocked and stunned those listening to the sermon, but it's not hyperbole and it's not exaggeration. And let me just 
give you a little background to why I say that. Brief history. So when Israel had been exiled to Babylon and they returned in 500 BC, there was no king. Okay, there was no king who was to shepherd and, and, and lead the people into the ways of righteousness as the other kings were. There was no king because why? Israel was a conquered people. It was Alexander the Great, and it was Alexander the Great's idiot sons who fought over all his territory, and then it was the Romans. And there was going to be no king. Caesar, Caesar only was king or his puppet rulers under him. And so there arose this faithful group of leaders, scribes, who said, we are going to preserve the traditions of Israel. We are going to preserve the Torah. We are going to lead the people in faithfulness. We're going to uphold and teach them the word of God. These were the good guys, and they were the Pharisees. And their heart was to run hard after the heart of God. But slowly over time, as they attempted to, to rule the people of Israel, what oftentimes happens happened to them. Power became important, appearances became important, and they slowly but surely began to add on rules, regulations, things that if you were going to be a faithful Jew, not only did you have to obey Torah, but you had to obey all these other things too. This is what Jesus refers to when he talks about the scribes and the Pharisees and their traditions. And what happened over time is people just assumed, well, this is God's standard for righteousness, and we can't do it. The Pharisees, they can devote their all day, every day, their whole, their living, all their vocation to doing these laws, but but we can't. That was one problem. But here was the second problem. They did the right things outwardly, the Pharisees did. But inwardly, they were corrupt to the core. Inwardly, they were, see, they were doing the right things for the wrong reasons. This is why Jesus says, and we're going to find this out when he says, for example, when you pray, don't go stand on the street corner to be seen by men. Go into your closet, prayer closet. Pray, pray there. Your heavenly Father knows who you are and what you're praying for. He says this because for the Pharisees, the law, while they were doing all the right things outwardly, inwardly, they were doing them for all the right reasons. They wanted to be seen. They wanted to be respected. They wanted to be honored. Listen to what Jesus tells them in Matthew 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. See, when Jesus says our righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees, that's not hyperbole. The problem with the Pharisees, contrary to popular opinion, is not that they took the law too seriously. The problem is they didn't take the law seriously enough. For them, it was just a means of show, respect, honor, looking good, elevating their position, 
enriching themselves. They wanted to be seen as such a way by men. But Jesus says, the only righteousness that pleases me is the righteousness that flows from a transformed heart. That's what Jesus is saying. When your righteousness, folks, comes out of a transformed heart, when you know that you have been saved by grace, when you know that you have cast yourself upon the mercy of Christ and that he has forgiven you, he has laid his life down for you, he's made you new, regenerated your heart, and you come to him with an eagerness, a posture that says, I want to honor my king. I want to honor my savior. Your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees because their righteousness flowed from a corrupt heart. One of the things you're going to see as we continue through the sermon is a lot of things Jesus will say. For example, you have heard that it was said, for example, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemies. That's a quotation from the Old Testament. He says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. What, what's happening right there? Jesus is getting at the full intent of the Old Testament. Jesus is saying the intent of the Old Testament is not just to keep you from physically killing each other. The intent of the Old Testament is that you would love and that you would show mercy and that the law of God would flow from your heart and transform your life and transform your relationships. That's why I'm here, Jesus says. I'm here to beat a path to the cross, to lay my life down, to be fully obedient to all the righteous requirements of the law. That's another amazing thing. Jesus fulfills the law by being perfectly obedient to all of it, every jot and tittle. Not so that we don't become obligated to the law, but the law is no longer, we're no longer indebted to the law. Jesus has laid down his life, fulfilled the law on our behalf so that we are now freed to pursue righteousness and good deeds, not to be saved, but because we are saved. We have overflowing hearts of thankfulness and grace. Let me again ask you, before we leave this last point, what is your posture to the word of God. You see, as we come to terms with that and God begins to show us the different ways that we haven't honored him, that we've sort of been on the mission to do what we wanna do when we wanna do it. We have, a, we have a life, we have a philosophy that's on the hunt for a Bible text we have a decision that we've already made that we're hunting desperately for. Jesus says, I know this about you. And that's why I've laid my life down for you. So that through my transformation of your heart by faith in me, now you are ready. Now you are able to do good works that please me. Jesus has not come to abolish the word of God or the law. Jesus has come to fulfill it. And it's with that great truth in mind that we come to the table this morning.
We're asking God, God, show any impure way in me. Lord, and thank you for your righteousness given to me by virtue of your death, which can now activate a righteousness, a wholeheartedness. Remember, righteousness in the Sermon on the Mount is a wholeheartedness. It's not perfection. It's a consistency, the inward and the outward match. Lord, I know those aren't perfect, but I, by your grace, want those things to become closer and closer as I move closer and closer to you. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads for a moment and to ask God to prepare your hearts as we come to the table this morning. And I'm going to ask our leaders to come to prepare to serve the elements.